Wouldn't it be great if every morning was Easter morning? Well, it is if you're a believer, that's true. Every morning's Easter morning. Well, we apologize if you had to walk a half mile to get in. Sorry if you had to park a long way away. It was true in the last service. And we're working on that issue. We're building a new building. If you haven't been to New Oak before, uh, there's some building plans out in the atrium. You can take a look at those to see what we're constructing and give you an idea. But next year, Easter, we intend to be in the new facility. That'll be pretty great. Yeah. Very excited about that. I'd love to pray with you um, before we jump in. We'll be in Mark 14 primarily this morning. Um, maybe you want to follow along on your phone or a Bible if you have one. And um, we'll, we'll go to that in just a minute. But let's pray first that God would meet us at the reading of his word. Would you join me? Thank you, Father, for the um, delight of being able to declare words of praise. Thank you for the authors of songs and, and the gift of musicians to help us um, express things that we can't do on our own. And so we thank you for the gift of music. Thank you for the gift of your written word. And now we get to turn our hearts towards that and ask that you would speak to us. So I pray, Father, for those who are watching online right now and for those in the auditorium, that for each of us, our hearts would be united with you and that we would hear very clearly what you have to say, what you want to communicate. Father, I pray especially for those who are new to church and may not yet even be believers in Jesus that you would meet them at this point, God, and and draw them toward you and open their mind that they might understand these things in just a very simple fashion. Father, I pray for those who are believers, that you would strengthen us, remind us again of what we have in Christ. We pray for that in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. On Friday, things could not have been darker. It was a black sky for a reason. There there was darkness over Golgotha, over the mountainside where Jesus is crucified. Everything is completely black. And according to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. It is a very dark day when family and friends have to gather together and choose an outfit for someone in their family who has died. For my mom, when she passed away 10 years ago, family got together, went to the closet trying to choose an outfit for her to wear into the coffin. The same was true for my grandfather. Somebody got together and and chose an outfit for him to wear to the funeral, even though he was the one that had passed away. We all get dressed in death clothes, ultimately, because we're human we will come to that place where someone's going to have to choose some clothing for us. The same is true for Jesus. On that dark Friday, we see in John 19.39, they, meaning Nicodemus and Joseph, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings. And there's the death clothes right there. They bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which, in which no one had been laid yet. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What an incredible chasm between the two words, God and graveyard. You got what? what, God on one side and graveyard on the other side. I get that. Those two seem to be complete opposites. There's a huge gulf in between, like a valley. God, graveyard, but how do you put the two together? God in a graveyard. One is life, one is death. There's huge overtones going on here. 
And, and as great a paradox as that is, the men that he created are guarding his body. And he lay on a slab of stone that he called into existence, and he's wrapped in chains of linen as though that could have some capacity to hold him down, God, in a graveyard. Aren't you glad, church, that the story doesn't end there? Aren't you glad that that was Friday? But you know what's coming, right? You know what's coming. Let's go to Sunday, Acts 2, verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Of all the but God statements in the Bible, that one's the biggest. There's 1,332 of them. I know that because I've counted. There's 1,332 times when it says, but God, but God remembered Noah, but God spoke to Moses. But God spoke to Joseph and said, do not be afraid, Joseph, but God, and there's none bigger than the but God that you see there, but God raised him up again. You know what that means for you, church? It means this, what was seen as a tomb is in reality a womb. What was seen as a tomb is indeed the thing that was going to give life. Check this, like every other human, one who dies, this God-man, the one whom we call Jesus, is prepped for the grave, and they choose death clothes for him. The guards watch over him, the tomb encases him, and these chains of linen, they bind him, but those could not hold him down, because according to God's word, Acts chapter 2, it was impossible for him to be held down. Death can't hold him. He could not be held down. The soldiers couldn't hold him down. They may as well try to stop the earthquake that morning. How'd you like the job assignment that those soldiers were given that day? Your job is to keep Jesus in the tomb. I mean, talk about being set up for failure, right? You can't win that one. That's not a good job assignment. Jesus, I want you to check this. Jesus willingly wore those grave clothes into the tomb. He said this in John 10, 17, his own words, I lay down my life. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So this tells us that the king of life deliberately allows himself to be dressed in a death garment, and he wears them into the tomb for one specific reason, so that you could be dressed one day, not in grave clothes, but in grace clothes. Wow, how good is our God? I don't have to wear the grave clothes because Jesus went to the grave for me. I can be dressed in grace clothes. So you believers understand exactly what I'm talking about. But this is only possible because we have victory in Jesus. According to Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have victory this morning, if you're a believer, you do. And if we have victory on Easter morning, we need to ask ourselves this question. This is especially good for you if you're new to church. What does that mean? What, what are you talking about, Mark? What, what kind of victory are you speaking of? Well, let me get you a, a handle on that, maybe some imagery that will help you put that piece together. We need to go back to the tomb for that kind of imagery so that we understand that. One moment, there's a cold body laying on a slab of stone completely engulfed in death, nothing but utter blackness in the silence of a grave, no shaft of light coming through there. And then according to the Bible, with the roar of an earthquake shaking the very gates of hell, the chest heaves and the eyes spring open and the king of kings rises and he bursts forth in supremacy. 
The Bible says further that the angels suddenly appear direct from the throne room of the living God in fierce, white, dazzling appearance, still with the glow of the Shekinah glory on them, shimmering as though they're electrified with clothing that flashes brighter than snow, eyes that blaze, and words that speak as thunder. What the military had secured is of no effect because it took the strength of Rome to roll that massive boulder into place to seal the tomb, but it's been cast aside as though it's an empty eggshell. And let's be very, very clear, the stone was not moved to let Jesus out. It was so that we could see in. Because the king of life is not held down by anything. It's not held down by death or any created thing. Acts 2 says it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That stone meant nothing to him. To those who were fresh, just arriving on the scene, the angels communicate really directly to them and very specifically in Matthew 28, verse 5. You see this on the screen. I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. So there, there's no mistaking whatsoever what's happened. Jesus has been resur resurrected. And if you're new to church, I want you to know that the resurrection is the cornerstone of Christian faith. There's no reason to be here this morning if Jesus was not resurrected. You may as well have gone to an Easter egg hunt. There's no reason to be singing these songs or for these musicians to work that they did in the way that they did to lead us. Because if Jesus isn't risen, we are of most people to be pitied according to the Bible. The scripture says, if you take away the resurrection, you destroy Christianity. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Now, news travels really fast in the ancient world. Hundreds of thousands of people had gathered in Jerusalem so that they could be there for the Passover. And so the news is traveling very, very quickly. And most of those who were in the city had already heard of the arrest of Jesus. And they heard of the trial and they heard of the crucifixion. And now it's three days later and rumors are making its way around the street very, very quickly. They begin hearing wild reports to the degree that the government actually has to issue an edict saying the followers of Jesus, they stole the body. That's why he's missing. So in the midst of all the confusion and all of the commotion going on in the city, we get a very specific detail from another communication from an angel in the book of Mark. Mark 16, 7. But go tell his disciple and Peter. Now the news is relayed straightforward, very, very directly, specifically to Peter. And now he has to see this for himself. So we're told in Luke 24, 12, Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings by themselves. Do you ever notice in the Easter story that again and again and again, the story of the grave clothes keep popping up? They keep appearing on the scene. They're there speaking something very specifically. So Peter's looking inside. Now, we know that nothing happens by accident with God. So there must be something very specific he wants you to know about those grave clothes. Why is that included over and over again? In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the exact same detail. In very decisive terms, we understand God shouting to Peter here, Peter, pay attention to this. These wrappings are a witness to you, a witness to you, new hope. The stone has been tossed aside for sure. The Roman seal has been broken. The soldiers, they lay where they fainted. 
But all of that could have been done by man. Man put the stone in place. Man could remove the stone. Man could easily break the seal. The soldiers, they could have fainted for a lot of reasons, but this, this with the grave clothes, how do you explain this? According to the ancient Greek language, the way that it's written, it was in a perfect mummy form, as though someone had just let the air out of a balloon and the clothing just collapsed right where it was at, even though it had matched the shape of the body. It had not been moved. It's the death clothes, God giving personal evidence. The empty linen clothes are screaming the truth. He lives. He's alive. So you find the angel saying to those at the tomb, Mark 16, 7, but go Tell his disciples and Peter. I don't know if you've read the story and wondered, why Peter? Why is one person singled out among all those people? Why Peter? Well, as you can imagine, there's a story behind the story. And the story behind the story goes back to Thursday night. Jesus is sitting down to dinner, and he's eating with the guys, and it's the Passover. It's the Last Supper. And in the midst of eating dinner, he says to the disciples, You guys are all going to bail on me. Every one of you are going to run. And and they recoil at the thought. We would never leave you. How could you say such a thing? And Peter gets really adamant about it. And they all agree with Peter saying, no, we would never do that to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, before a rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times, even you. Now, take that thought into these next few verses here, because Jesus, we know the story, has been arrested by this point. Mark 14, 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest, verse 54. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, as you move through the story, you find that people begin recognizing Peter. And especially a servant girl of the high priest recognizes him. And so in verse 66, one of the servants, we're told in verse 67, you also were with Jesus and Nazarene. But he denied it. And let's just call it what it is, church. It's a lie. Peter is a liar in that moment. He's lying. Go to verse 69. They began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. Peter's lying again. And when you go into the rest of verse 69 and 70, you find the third time, again, saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. And in this part, you can tell that Peter is a fisherman because he's really good at it. You blink and he blink. (laughs) He's using words that I won't use here in church, right? And he's just acting like a fisherman. Blank and he blank, 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 don't know him. Stop trying to pin this on me. I don't know what you're talking about. So he's angry and he's embarrassed and he's frustrated and he's trapped and he doesn't know what else to do. So he's desperately trying to hide his association with Jesus. And then the painful part of verse 72. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he began to weep. When we think of weep in the English language, we begin to think of somebody who's just maybe like at a funeral, or they've got a broken heart, and tears are just coming down their cheek. That would be a wrong interpretation of that word. And because this is New Hope, I can't let you out of here with at least one Greek word this morning. So here's your one Greek word. This particular one is klio, 
And it's talking about violently wailing out loud, sobbing so that everyone can hear you. What brings about that kind of a visceral reaction? What's triggering that kind of emotion? Because this is strong Peter. He makes his living at the sea. He's a fisherman. He was just swearing like the guys on the deadliest catch. He's got a language all his own. And now you find him sobbing and wailing publicly? I doubt that we can appreciate the depth of his pain unless we too have failed, unless we've done that kind of thing, especially in a way that we would have never anticipated we would do. Some over the course of this weekend will be immediately identifying with us thinking, I'm wondering if my failure is so great I can even salvage it. Well, Dr. Luke, before it gets brighter, gets darker, Dr. Luke gives us another detail that makes it mm, so hard. Look with me on the screen. Luke twenty-two sixty. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Oh, man. Can you imagine, church? Peter's transfixed by that contact of the eyes. He's suffering the most excruciating emotional pain of his life, and now he's got eye contact with Jesus, the very one he has failed. And I'm thinking, what's in that look? It obviously penetrated Peter right to his very soul. So Jesus is standing there. He's chained, and he's bleeding, and his face is swollen, and he's covered with bruises, and there's spit dripping off him because of the way that they've abused him, and it is more than Peter can bear. He can't even handle this. How deep is the pain of this failure, and just call it what it is, this sin? It is so deep that the authors of Scripture continue to write about this stuff decades after the actual event. You've read in Corinthians before, you've been here for communion if you're a church person, you've participated. When Paul gives the description of the Last Supper, he always starts out this way. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. See, the disciples identify it by the betrayal. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. They look back over the decades and they say, that was so painful. So how deep is that failure? How brutal is Peter's realization that he has fallen short of the glory of God? In his darkest hour, he abandons Jesus. Peter doesn't measure up. So you can begin to appreciate the thoughts that are swirling through his mind. Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Peter, before the night is over, you will deny me three times. What is going through his head in those moments? Well, you find him now on Easter morning. And he's inside the tomb, and a shaft of light is coming through because the stone is gone. And you find that same one looking at these empty grave clothes that have just dropped as though the air is out of the balloon. And in a moment, he realizes all that Jesus has said about the resurrection on the third day is an absolute reality. And seeing these grave clothes lying on this cold cement slab, it's only a reminder of his own personal failure. Because three nights earlier, he was so concerned about defending his character. 
In confidence, he blurts out, even though everyone will bail on you, Jesus, I never will fail. These guys, yeah, you worry about them. Don't worry about me. Because he's so proud and he's so confident and so strong. He self-proclaimed, I am the truest of the true. In the ancient world, nighttime was divided into four parts. There was always the, what they called the, the nine o'clock shift, nine to midnight, midnight to three, three to six in the morning, and six to nine. They each had their own labels, but the time from three to six in the morning in the ancient world was called the cock crow hour. Before Peter can barely get the words out of his mouth, we're told he just finishes the statement and immediately the rooster begins crowing. Many here over the course of this weekend will know this sense of failure that Peter's experiencing in this moment. Any commitments broken in your life? Any promises that you made that you didn't keep? Or how about this one, a, a tongue that gets you in trouble more times than you can count? Can I get an amen? Yeah. We, we identify with Peter, right? We understand exactly what's going on here. This once very proud person is now broken, and he's confronted with this huge reality check. So just go to where I'm going and just picture Peter standing outside this empty cave, he ducks in and sees the shock of his life. Grave clothes with no body. How do you make sense of this? The king of life has deliberately allowed himself to be dressed in these garments of death. And then he wears them into a tomb. Why? Well, to be sure, there's victory here. There's obviously something stunning has happened. But what does the resurrection mean to Peter? He's failed. Jesus is rising in victory, but Peter has bailed on him. Now, rather than only picking on Peter, let's just recognize, we'll just be honest with ourselves, it is human nature to be oblivious to the things that can take us down. For Peter, it's pride, right? The, the very thing that Satan uses against him, it not only caught him by surprise, it crushes him. See, you and I, we have this involuntary reaction when things come along that we don't anticipate. And our involuntary response to an unexpected situation, that's the indicator of our true character, much more so than the, the situations that we anticipate. So when we're caught off guard, that really demonstrates our true character. Just think about the last time somebody cut you off in traffic, right? That, that hand that you didn't want to use as a gesture all of a sudden becomes... A gesture, words come out of your mouth, temper loses and it flares. We, we can immediately identify with this Achilles heel. See, this is Peter. God, don't worry about me. I'm good. I got this. You and I, yeah, you worry about those other guys. No, I'm, I'm good. Thanks. Don't worry about me. You and I, God, we're good. And that's precisely where it Satan goes with his arrow. Get your amen ready, new hope. Gratefully, it is in grace that Jesus went to the cross. For proud, arrogant, foolish, good, sinful people. Peter's just one of us. See, even though Jesus knew that we would fail him, he's not ashamed to go to the cross for us. 
Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In spite of our pride and in spite of our weakness and our failures, even to the degree of a denial, in gracious mercy, he forgives us our past, our present, and our future sins. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus died for sins you haven't even committed yet? If he didn't, he couldn't say, it is finished. It's finished. He covered the whole thing. You just have to be a person who believes he died for your past, your present, and your future. And you have to believe that he is the Son of God. Now, to end this, to to bring closure, how do I apply this to my life? We have to go back to where we started, where we find Peter at the grave. You find in the resurrection story amazing grace. When people think of the cross of Jesus, they think of amazing grace. But rarely do they ever think of the resurrection as amazing grace. And I want to show you how you see amazing grace in this. Because before Peter even knew that he had a need, God's already shown up with the grace. Look at the statement from the angels again. Mark 16, 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You really should be bearing down on the past tense statement in the word told. He told you guys back on Thursday. He told you where he was going to meet you later. Just as he told you, now just hit the pause button. The single greatest gift that God could possibly give to humanity is the forgiveness of sin. The single greatest gift that he could possibly give us is forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because we all have it. We've all been bitten by the snake. There's no one that lives a perfect life. And so without forgiveness, there's no reconciliation. And without reconciliation with God, there's no hope of heaven. There's no chance for it. That means there's no victory. So down through the ages, Peter's denial, it's been looked upon as this enormous fail which it was, absolutely was. But in light of the Lord's forgiveness, the story actually tells of a huge victory. See, here's what's going on in the story behind the story behind the story. Jesus knew they were going to fail. Even before the desertion, even before the betrayal, he's sitting down at dinner with them saying, this is what you guys are going to do. But when this is all over... When it's all done, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. See, you're looking at the grace of God here, church. Jesus knew. Look at the grace of God in that past tense statement in verse 7 on the screen. Just as he told you. He told you. He knew you were going to bail. But he also made plans. He made plans to see Peter again, even though he's covered in failure. He made plans to see you again, even though you've got sin. He made plans to see you again if you will receive this. See, Peter's story is our story. He's just like us. We have all failed and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So even the worst sin, even in the worst sin, the Lord God is there to dress you in clothing of grace. And the remarkable thing about it is you don't have to earn it because Jesus already did it all. So from the dawn of history, people have struggled to make themselves worthy to stand before God. And we do this instinctively because we know we're not worthy. Many think they, they, they've got too much failure, and, and they think, no, I can't even go there because I'm just not good enough. I just can't get there. And here's truth. If that's you this morning, if, if you think that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up, hear this. You're right. You don't. But Jesus does. And so we get there through him. We can't do it on our own. And it's so hard to hear, isn't it? It's like, I can't believe you said that. Well, it's true. So I don't know what kind of a tradition you grew up in in which people might have told you, if you just do certain things, God will like you. Well, God loves you, but you're not worthy. Jesus makes you worthy. So you can walk out of here today. I promise you, you can walk out of here today as one who is seen by God as completely righteous. What you need to hear first is it's not earned. You cannot, and you know what? Every natural fiber of our human being, we want to earn God's favor. And that might be new news to you that you can't earn it if you grew up in a tradition in which your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents, maybe somebody said to you, well, if you just take communion enough, or if you just go and get baptized, or or if you're just a good boy, God will let you in. Well, that stands in contrast to what the Bible says, Ephesians 2.9, grace is the gift of God. It's not the result of works that no one should boast. So that means it has absolutely nothing to do with my achievements, either culturally or religiously. It has nothing to do with communion, it has nothing to do with baptism, it has nothing to do with church membership or showing up here on Easter morning in April 2018. It has nothing to do with that. It only comes one way, and that one way is when a person surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ, making Him the Savior of their life. That means recognizing you're a sinner and repenting of the sin, and then receiving the forgiveness that God brings. So there's something that you need to do, and I say this on the authority of the Bible. If you're not a believer yet, and you want to be, you want to receive what Jesus offers you, just tell Him. Tell him you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and I promise you, he won't be surprised. He won't be surprised because he knows everything about you. He already knows. It's not like, I didn't know you sinned. No, God knows. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything that Peter ever did. You just confess to him your need for his forgiveness, saying, I need Jesus. You can do that in your seat right now where you're sitting. You don't need to walk an aisle or come up to a platform or even talk to a pastor. You can just tell God right now in the quietness of where you're sitting, God, I need this. I need what Mark's talking about. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness of my sin. I recognize who he is. I'm promising you, you can start all over again. Everybody can. There is a new beginning in Jesus So I say this on the authority of God's word, Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Such good truth, church. You know what that means for you? And this is encouraging for you if you're a believer this morning. 
That means that you're standing. Go out of here this day with this encouragement. Your standing before God is not based on your feelings. So I don't know if you came in here a little depressed this morning. You're thinking, i got to go to church on Easter because I'd like to be around some people who are happy. Maybe I'll get some good music and that will make me feel better and I'll be reminded again. Well, that's great. That's a wonderful reason to come to church. But your standing before God is not based on your feelings. It's based on who God says you are. And God says you are the redeemed of the Lord. So he sees you in a very specific way. The way I invite you to picture yourself right now. I wonder if mentally you could just create this image in your mind. Picture yourself clothed in a long white robe. Got that image? Picture yourself in a flowing robe of radiant white. You stand clothed, church, in God's amazing grace. We stand clothed in grace clothes, not grave clothes, because of what Jesus did, because we have victory in Jesus. So just check this. The king of life deliberately puts on clothes of death so that you could be dressed one day, not in grave clothes, but in grace clothes. And it's only possible because we have victory in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yeah. The first Corinthians, first Corinthians 15, 57, I'm going to send you out the door with this. Thanks be to God who gives us the, do you think he whispered this, victory? Or did he say, victory? Uh, I'm going to let you do that with me. I didn't do that in the last services. Let's just do that together. Let's just shout out victory. One, two, three. Victory! I'm pretty sure that's the way that was written. Thanks be to God. We got victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Good Easter morning. I'm going to pray that you remember this as you take on this week. I'm praying for you right now if you're not yet a believer and and you maybe just confess Christ during the service. You've got that victory, too, if you received what we just talked about. And maybe God's still working on your heart. I'm going to pray for you right now. Let's pray together, church. Father, I thank you for the joy that's evident in this room. It it came through the music, and it it came through um, the response we have to the, the word that's been written. The victory that we have is so easy for us to forget about. So God, I pray that you remind us this week, remind us this afternoon. We're likely to forget by the time we hit our car in the parking lot. So remind us, in the same way that you restored Peter and we look forward to meeting him one day in heaven, you you have the same grace toward us. You have it towards all of humanity if they would just receive it. So Father, I pray for those who might not yet believe Remind them of the power that you have to forgive and wipe away our sin. Draw those who might not yet believe into relationship with you. And I pray for that, Father. Thank you for what you've revealed in your word this morning. Give us confidence as we walk out the door now. Put your blessing on us for having spent time together on Easter morning. We pray for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week.